Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you here from Montecito, California. I am excited to be seeing many of you at our upcoming Wealth Formula Meetup event happening later on this month. It's uh, April 22nd, 23rd in Phoenix, Arizona. Now, I don't know. I think it might be filled up, but if you are interested in coming, check it out at wealthformulaevents.com. And if it is full and you really want to come, shoot me an email at bucketwealthformula.com. But uh, this is a great opportunity to you know, learn a little bit, go on a uh, bus tour to find out a little bit about value-add real estate and what our investor club is doing. And uh, also probably the biggest thing is just to meet one another. It's a really fun event. And uh, uniformly, that's what people talk about is their favorite part of the entire weekend. Anyway, check that out at wealthformulaevents.com. Now, you know, as far as uh, today's show, I want to talk a little bit about venture capital. You know, you would think from uh, the vilification of capitalists in recent years that us capitalists are nothing but a waste of space on uh, earth, right? You hear it all the time, government officials these days in Congress, you know, pay your fair share, capitalist pig. I mean, that's what you hear these days. Of course, in reality, without us, the government would be broke. Where do you think the revenue is coming from? I mean, it's not coming from people with no money. But what makes America great And what has made the world a place that it is in terms of technology and healthcare over the last century has entirely to do with the efforts of capitalists. You know, think about it, right? Just think about all the walk around people with iPhones these days, people being able to get educated uh, on things that they wouldn't otherwise be able to learn just because they have access to personal devices. Now, was Steve Jobs doing that for free? Was he coming up with these kinds of devices and stuff like that? No, he wasn't, right? And now more people uh, are connected to one another and and the news and and social media and education and everything. And then any time in history, now that could be good. It could be bad. And if you're the Unabomber, you might hate technology, right? You might have another view. However, I will say, I will argue that technology has made our lives better and it's because of investments from capitalists like you and me. Now, I'm not in the world of venture capital myself. If I knew enough to be able to invest intelligently in the space, I probably would be. Uh, beyond its potential for huge returns, venture drives innovation in our world today. And while most of us, you know, 
people like me, at least who are listening to this show, are far more interested in owning stable assets, uh, what we call boring assets, like multifamily real estate apartment buildings. It's good to know the role of venture capital in our world today. And who knows, you may be inspired to become a venture capitalist yourself after this week's episode of Wealth Formula Podcast, as we will interview Sebastian Malaby on this topic after these messages. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is best-selling New York Times author uh, Sebastian Malaby. Now, Sebastian is currently the Paul Volcker Senior Fellow in International Economics at the Council on Foreign Relations and a Washington Post columnist. He's the author of the current book. His current book is The Power Law, Venture Capital and the Making the New Future. Now, I could go on a long time about all the things that uh, that Sebastian has done in the past, but uh, suffice it to say, he's a very accomplished author, having written you know multiple books in the financial space, including a book that, uh, as I said, was a New York Times bestseller. He's written about Alan Greenspan and uh, certainly has a, a significant breadth of knowledge in this space. So, Sebastian, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast. Great to be with you. I am going to focus today the topic of the latest book, which was uh, really about venture capital. I'm curious, tell me how you chose this topic uh, of venture capital and, uh, you know, how, how you got interested in the first place. Sure. I mean, there's two things that drew me into the subject. The first is really that um, venture capital is the most exciting type of finance right now with the tech boom and all that. Of course, we might be running into difficulty with that, but we can, we can come to that later. But essentially, um, you know, VC, venture capital, has not that enormous amount of money under management. Fewer than 1% of the companies that get started in the United States every year actually raise venture dollars. But the impact is considerable. So if you look at all of the companies that went public since 1995, roughly about half um, were VC-backed. And three-quarters of the market cap arising um, from that group was because of VC-backed companies. So this tiny fraction of startups get the money, and then it has this huge output. And I just wanted to, to grapple with that. Yeah. The other 
thing I would just add is that you know there's an intellectual mystery at the heart of venture capital, which I kind of find fascinating. You know, most kinds of finance, you might start by discounting the future cash flows of the asset to figure out what it should be worth. Yeah, you know, there is no cash flow to discount, right? You've got a startup, and all you have is two-legged mammals who walk into your office with a dream uh, and a vision of what they might build, but they haven't built it yet. Let me back up for a second here, Sebastian, because I know, you know, when people are listening to this, many people have not participated in venture capital and you have this image of, you know, what RVCs is this group of powerful people sitting in Silicon Valley deciding what to invest in. I mean, is that basically what it is? Tell, t- give us sort of a, you know, give us sort of the infrastructure of how a VC actually works versus what we might be imagining. You know, it's not far off to say that it's a bunch of people sitting in Silicon Valley figuring out what to invest in. I mean, there's a lot of that going on. Um, the other part, though, is that there's also, after the investment, there's the involvement, right? The hands-on stuff. You go on the board, you try to mentor the startup founder, you you make introductions, you help with the first five engineers that are going to be hired. You might help to put in a new marketing team, whatever it is that, that's needed. So it's it's a more activist form of money management than other kinds. You know, one of the things that I find uh, fascinating, which I think you uh, allude to in your book a little bit about, is how VCs are so cloistered and that they're, you know, there's they have such a, um, you know, there's so much uh, influence uh, from these people of these major VCs that are ultimately you know, putting money into Silicon Valley or in Boston, and they are ultimately, in a way, choosing the future of technology. And and because of that, they're almost sort of dictating uh, the future of humanity. And I'm curious kind of your take on, on, on what I just said, if you think that that's true or overstated or, or what, what, what perspective do you have on that? Yeah, you know, some time ago I wrote a book about hedge funds and people used to call those guys the masters of the universe, but really they're just the masters of the markets. Right. With, with venture capital, as you're saying, uh, this is inventing the future for all of society. I mean, it's a fundamentally different thing. If you think about, you know, how you now um, think, research, find information, you know, it's Google, it's other online services. And so the way that you even arrive at epiphanies has been altered by venture-backed companies. And, and that has its pitfalls too, right? I mean, if you have a group of people who are ultimately sort of focused and dictating various technologies, uh, you know, when you look at, um, you know, things that are happening, I, I would imagine that that type of groupthink has its uh, pitfalls as well. Yeah, I mean, groupthink is, is definitely there. I mean, one dimension of it is that, you know, venture capital is not as diverse as it should be. So of the investing partners in Silicon Valley venture shops, only 16% are women and only 3% are black investors. Um, And, you know, again, if you're going to try to invent the future for all of society, you should probably try to represent society a bit better. Um, So that's one thing. There's also just the, the bubble potential, right? If you were to invent a machine for inflating bubbles, you would say, okay, all right, I've got the idea. We're going to put all of the investors in one road and they're basically going to go to the same one hotel restaurant because there won't be another restaurant to go to. And they're going to syndicate into each other's deals and they're not allowed to go short the market because you can't do that in private positions. And you'd be describing Sandhill Road. Um, so uh, that that's another cause of concern. 
Yeah, sure. And then on top of that, um, and you also have presumably in some of these situations, um, you know, reliance on each other uh, for information. I, I guess the you know the the story that comes to mind uh, for those people who don't know is is the Theranos uh, saga, right? I mean, isn't that uh, would that be an example of you know sort of one of the things that people have to be careful of in venture capital? I mean, Theranos is a, is an interesting example because it's a bit of a mixed story, right? There was one recognizable venture capitalist who invested right at the beginning when Theranos was just an idea. He put in like half a million bucks, uh, which in VC terms is nothing. Um, and, you know, backing an experiment is a legitimate thing to do as if you're an angel investor. So I think there was something wrong with that. I mean, the scandal came later when, you know, the so-called product was generating so-called you know, results for, for patients. And that was just a lie. It was a fraudulent thing. And that's the outrage. And, and, and at that point, the company was being funded by what I would call venture tourists, not venture capitalists, right? These are people you know, like Rupert Murdoch, like uh, the Walton family of Walmart fame, not real tech investors, but people who just wanted to kind of play in that space because it was sexy. Um, so... I think in a way the Theranos story, although it's shocking, is not an indictment really of venture capital. Tell me a little bit more about your experience uh, in the uh, w- while writing this book. I'm curious about like the, the groups that you worked with. It sounds like there's some, you know, you, you had an opportunity to sort of get on the inside with a lot of these players. Uh, what are some of the things that you sure. learned about, you know, the VC world, some of the conclusions you made? Well, when I write these books, I take a long time over them. I take five years or so. And the reason is I'm determined to get to actually see and talk to and understand uh, the key protagonists. Otherwise, what value am I really delivering to the reader? Um, And so, for example, I I spent a lot of time in the end with people from Sequoia Capital. That's probably the top venture capital partnership in the world. And I got to understand you know, what the skill was, you know, why is it that Sequoia outperforms the average venture fund by like, you know, sixfold? Um, If you look back at the investments they've made this century and you you get to understand things like how they've incorporated decision science into their way of choosing investments. Um, You know, we all know that, you know, we suffer from loss aversion, meaning that we would, you know, gamble to avoid a loss, but we wouldn't be, willing to take as much risk in reaching for the upside. So they've built that insight into their decision process. So when a partner writes uh, a memo ahead of a decision, whether they're going to invest in a startup or not, the partner is required to write what's called the pre-parade section of the memo. And that is where you imagine the parade. Imagine everything went right with this company. How big and how great and how much money could it generate, right? And the reason is that people are normally embarrassed to stick their neck out and imagine how fantastic something could be. So you have to require it to give permission for people to dream about what the upside might be. And that's a way of uh, just one example of of Sequoia's sort of methodical skill um, and explains why it does well. This is fascinating. So, like, I mean, it's um, really sort of uh, taking the asymmetric risk and emphasizing the you know, the, the potential and the upside just to understand what it is that you're doing. Because obviously yeah. in the VC world, you're not, I mean, you're not, 
I mean, you're investing in moonshots. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Why, why are they always talking about moonshots? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I called my book The Power Law, and some of my friends who don't follow finance say, geez, this is about electricity. Is it about the legal system? No, the power law I'm talking about is the moonshot power law, uh, which is basically saying that the distribution of returns in venture capital is extremely skewed. You know, you have a portfolio of, say, 10 bets, it's likely that eight will go to zero, um, which would be a horrible, almost unimaginable, career-ending disaster if you were investing in public markets. Um, but uh, you know, one or two will hopefully do really, really well and make back the entire fund and more. So they'll do 10x, 20x your money. Um, and that distribution of returns, where most startups fail, but a few do incredibly well, forces venture capitalists to be reaching for these moonshots. They sound crazy and hubristic when they say things, gee, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back a, a, an attempt to disrupt the hotel business, and this is going to be a, a startup where you know, the idea is uh, people will have absolute and total strangers to stay on their couches and then in their spare rooms. Uh, you, know, you might think that sounds crazy, but of course it's Airbnb and it worked. And you have to go for those improbable ideas because those are the only ones that are going to be the successful moonshots. If it's like a normal idea, then 10 other people will do it too, and there'll be a lot of competition. You won't have margins, you won't have pricing power, and the investment won't be successful. Um, I'm curious in terms of like, I mean, I don't know exactly the the time period in which you were spending uh, this time with them, but it seems like, uh, you know, the there's a huge buzz on web three in general. Do you feel like that's where the focus is right now with digital, um, you know, with the cryptocurrency world and, and web three? Yeah, it's clearly been a, a growth area. I mean, when I began looking into VC actually around 2017, um, five years ago, uh, Bitcoin was pretty hot, but all these other things like metaverse, NFTs, Web3, all that stuff, completely unheard of. Then, you know, Bitcoin crashed in 2018, and then it recovered. And in this new iteration, we have all these add-ons with Ethereum and all these other coins. So, you know, I've seen a, I've seen a bit of an up and a down and an up, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, on this stuff. So it's been, it's been fascinating to watch. When VCs, when you, obviously we talk about VCs or, you know, uh, and I alluded to this before, which is like, you know, Silicon Valley or Boston and all that, but there's VCs in China too and uh, other places. How do you think the VCs are different in, in some of those other, uh, you know, see the Chinese versus the American VCs? Well, what's sort of amazing and actually I think not really understood is uh, something I discovered when I went to China for the book. And um, I was, I figured out who the top VCs were. And the answer was pretty much the same gang <laughs> as, as do really well in Silicon Valley. <laughs> right. Because, you know, I mentioned Sequoia before. They are the top company in Silicon Valley. Guess what? Sequoia China is the top company in China. Um, and they, basically the US VCs went to China around the 2000, 2005. And they brought the entire playbook. They brought the Silicon Valley lawyers. So all of the early Chinese digital uh, companies, you know, um, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, as well as Sina, Sohu, NetEase, Ctrip, all of these early success stories took American venture capital with American 
uh, lawyers structuring the deal with a parent company in the Cayman Islands so that you could have the various types of stock that Chinese law would not recognize. And so then you could have employee stock options, and that enabled a company like Alibaba to hire American coders and American business people to help them grow. Uh, and I really think that without those world-class recruits, Alibaba would not have become a world-class company. So some people say, oh, you know, the Chinese system is is built on the far-seeing Chinese state. That's nonsense. You know, the truth is actually American venture capital had a lot more to do with it. Uh, you know, and the uh, a lot of the Chinese VCs probably went to Stanford anyway. Right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> they did. Yeah. So. Um, let me shift topic a little bit and, you know, what, I mean, you address this a little bit in your book, but if you want to talk a little bit about, you know, what you see as venture capital impacts on the bigger picture, whether that's capitalism in general or, you know, income inequality, um, tell us what you, what, what you discovered there. You know, on income inequality, it's, it's a good question because the answer is quite nuanced. You know, on the one hand, Obviously, VCs themselves are making enormous amounts of money if they're successful. And the people they back, if they're successful, the entrepreneurs become, you know, 100 millionaires, billionaires, and so forth. So that's clearly exacerbating inequality. But the interesting thing is that it's doing it through disruption. And so it's actually quite good for um, class mobility, right? And in that sense, it's creating new opportunity uh, where the incumbents, who were the <laughs> existing rich people, are being challenged by the up-and-coming challenger, wannabe rich people. So it depends if you care about just equality or like equality of opportunity, how you would read that. Yeah, and ultimately, it's almost like, um, you know, it's, it's about as American as it gets, <laughs> right? If you think yes. about it, it's, it's, it's like a... Uh, democratization of an opportunity where these, you know, kids who are really good at things um, create things and all of a sudden can become billionaires, you know, and Absolutely. you just don't see that. And, and that, t- that to me is ultimately so American. It's, it's wonderful, but, and it's also, also in terms of driving the economy, Right. I mean, when you look at the VC impact on capitalism or the growth of economies, tell us a little bit about, you know, what, what you feel like the role and importance of that is. Yeah, it's huge. I mean, like I was saying earlier, if you look at the public companies that have gone on the market in the last, uh, you know, 25 years, um, three quarters of the market cap comes from these companies that were backed by venture capitalists. If you look at uh, patents, um, you know, a high share of patents are filed by VC-backed companies. And what's more, the quality of those patents, as measured by citations, um, is higher than the average, quite a lot higher. So, you know, I think in a world where value is shifting from the old kind of capital, physical capital, you know, to the new kind, which is patents, intellectual property, um, software, business processes, basically ideas, uh, that new kind of intangible economy is highly connected with the rise of venture capital because it's venture capitalists who understand whether you know a three million investment in a software development project is either worth a zero because it's rubbish 
uh, all worth $3 because it's genius, right? If you're just looking at the financial statements from a company and you say, oh, this says a $3 million in a software project, you'd have no idea how to value that. Who are the, um, you know, I, I guess shifting again, who are the investors? Did you get a chance to understand, you know, like even with the venture groups, right, they have their own limited partners, or I, I assume, you know, I, I don't know for sure that every one of these companies working on that model, but I assume they are. Um, did you get a chance to understand that culture at all? Yeah, um, I talked to some of the limited partners, and uh, the leading ones are the usual suspects, the big university endowment funds, whether it's Yale or Harvard or uh, you know Stanford or what have you, and then the smaller ones are muscling in, and so Often it's the case that the smaller colleges that have really good performance on their endowments, like Bowdoin, for example, in New England, uh, it's because they have a high allocation to venture capital. And then you have some um, pension funds that are trying to get into the game. And of course, you know, venture capital funds are quite keen on exited entrepreneurs uh, as LPs because those folks have their own networks, their connections, they can introduce deals. And so you see quite a lot of people who began as entrepreneurs and then they turn around and indirectly invest in entrepreneurs through uh, becoming LPs in in VC partnerships. So some of these larger ones like Sequoia, for example, I mean, it is actually sort of competitive to, I mean, an accredited investor with a million or a couple million bucks can't necessarily participate in that. Is that, is that right? Or is it, is it generally competitive on that end? Yes, it would be very, very hard to, to get yeah. them to accept your money. When you go to their offices in uh, Menlo Park, um, most of the conference rooms are named after the LPs. So you walk into the you know, Harvard room yeah. and then the Ford Foundation room and so forth. So that tells you who the LPs are. Okay, so let me ask you this, and I think this is you know, just for the sake of who this audience is. If you're an investor and you're an accredited investor, you've got some money, but obviously you're not an endowment. How do you how do you participate in this movement, like in this op- these types of opportunities? If they're so uh, obviously they're so selective about who who can participate. Well, it is a dynamic and Darwinian space. So you've got you know new companies being set up all the time, new investment partnerships. So I think there's an opportunity to get in if you identify a a good one early. The question is, do you have enough information to know who's good? Can you sort of see how embedded they are in the network? Are they going to get good deal flow? Um, What's their background? You can probably evaluate that if you have some sense of how Silicon Valley works. And I think that's the way to get in. So um, just I want to finish up with your book a little bit more and just ask you this. In terms of like what you felt like you learned uh, from, you know, this experience of writing this book, what are like the, you know, two or three things that you were most impressed with or surprised by? What I was amazed to really sort of solidify in my analysis is, and this gets to your question before about, you know, how it affects capitalism. You know, I, I went to Silicon Valley with a pretty open mind and I, you know, people told me, well, it was founded on defense contracts or it's was founded on Stanford University or, you know, various other theories about, gee, California had the gold rush of 1849 and it's always had this more entrepreneurial culture. And so I looked at all these theories and you quickly realize that 
most of them are just completely unpersuasive, right? So in the 60s and 70s, when Silicon Valley um, was, you know, it was a lesser player than the Boston ecosystem, um, the, the truth is that MIT was a better university than Stanford for engineering. Defense dollars were flowing into, Stan- into, into, into Boston more than into the Stanford area. And the whole thing about, you know, entrepreneurship is in the air is a bit vague. What really made a difference is the nature of the venture capital on the West Coast was more risk-taking. And when venture capital started to expand at the end of the 70s, because there were a couple of fantastic bets, you know, Apple went public in 1980, Genentech, the first biotech company, went public in 1980. And after that demonstration effect, a lot of capital flowed into VC, and it changed the ability of entrepreneurs to start new companies. It changed the willingness of engineers to to take a chance on a new startup. And that really was when Silicon Valley overtook the Route 128 Boston area as being the top innovation center in the world. So uh, that's the main thing I think I learned from the research is how venture capital drove the innovation cluster, explains why Silicon Valley is better. And then when you go and look at China and you try to figure out why they have such a strong digital economy, as I was saying earlier, it's because the same VCs went and did the trick again. So I think looking forward, you know, if you want to see whether Europe might emerge as an interesting digital economy center, you just have to look at which VCs are arriving there. And guess what? Sequoia just set up an office there a couple of years ago. And other companies like uh, General Catalyst, Lightspeed, Axel, these sort of famous Silicon Valley names, they are also moving into Europe. So, um, you know, Europe has a base of good engineering and a a rich consumer market. So I think if you mix in a bit of VC with that, you're going to see Europe um, catching up a bit in digital economy terms. Fascinating stuff, Sebastian. I want to thank you again for being on the show. The book, it's called The Power Law venture capital and the making of the new future obviously it is going to be available you know just about everywhere right uh and um i want to thank you again for being on the show and you know good luck with the book and we'd love to have you again on the show sometime for your next book great nice chatting with you thank you we'll be right back Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed that. Now, just a reminder, if you have not, and if you are interested in coming to our Wealth Formula Meetup event uh, later on this month, again, the dates on that are April 22nd and 23rd. There may be a few spots left. Check it out, wealthformulaevents.com. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the show. That's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Save You with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. 
You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.